right. Good morning, everyone. I'm excited to get our Lord's Day started today. And and again, I know we're in the kind of weird module seven, which isn't exactly Bible study. It's studying about Bible study. And so I I know that to me is not as edifying as just studying the Bible, but it is necessary. And my hope is that as you're walking through this, it gives you the tools necessary to um, really enhance your own ability to not only study the Word of God, but to communicate it to others. And I I think it's not taught well in the church, and so uh, it's been my passion to occasionally have time to do this. So, uh, like I said, this probably isn't, these aren't things that you're going to use in your quiet times this week uh, with great tears of joy, but it will uh, help you as you're studying the word for yourself. So that's my hope. So let's pray and then we'll get going with module seven, session three. Thank you, Father, for this uh, beginning of our Lord's Day. Thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to come before you with purified and cleansed hearts to have confessed our sins, Lord, and to have, uh, as, as Jesus demonstrated with the apostles, washed our feet, Lord, in the forgiveness given to those who know Christ, and to come before you with clean hands and a pure heart, and to begin this Lord's Day by thinking on you and focusing our thoughts on you and turning our attention away from the world, away from the cares that burden us, away from the difficulties that bring pain, and instead, Lord, to focus our eyes on Christ, on the cross, on the gospel, on the truths of the word of God, and on the sweet fellowship of the saints, Lord. We love our fellowship together, and we ask you to bless us in all of these things that you have given us, the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So today we are on observation part two. Even the name sounds boring, but we're going to uh, try to make it as as interesting as we can. Today we're talking about cross-references and word studies, um, some of the more dicey parts of studying the Bible. So we're going to do cross-references, word studies, and if we have time, we're going to talk about, if you're doing these assignments, um, getting rid of dead weight in your observations. Remember last time we did 72 sample observations plus four um, critical questions in our example text of Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. So um, I'm going to start kind of high altitude and then work our way down. I want to just talk to you first for a moment about um, Bible study as a treasure hunt. And there, there are not three to five magical resources that give you all the answers. If that were the case, theological libraries wouldn't have four, five, and six, and seven hundred thousand volumes in, in them. Um, theological journal articles wouldn't have tens of thousands of articles. So there aren't three to five magic resources um, that's, that, that betrays a lack of understanding of what the Bible is uh, presenting to us as eternal truth. Um, those are the same people that joke that pastors play golf three times a week and have lots of time on their hands and only work one day a week and that sort of thing. Um, and there are those that do that. That's, that's between them and the Lord, I suppose. But resources take work to learn. They take work to get familiar with. And as you find good ones, you you grab onto them. Um, It it is a treasure hunt. 
I've given you just a couple of basic resources to use, but honestly, you making a search and being really diligent to um, to flip through a resource. What's the first page you ought to look at in any resource? It is the table of contents. And you look at it and search it out as being useful and helpful. Uh, just as a reminder, after this slide, we're going to start going fast, but all of these notes are available online. You can grab them at the BTI portal. So I've told you some of the basic resources, but keep looking for good ones. Um, Another good one, and I haven't looked at it in a while, admittedly, so if it's terrible, somebody tell me, um, but at least it used to be BibleStudyTools.com. You can use it for cross-references, and if you don't want to buy physical books, um, then then I understand that. Uh, for me, as a pastor, if I'm going to teach a book of the Bible, I buy everything I can that I think is going to be useful. If you're going to do one Bible study for third graders, you probably don't need to spend $200 on commentaries um, to, to do that, so... Use some some of the good free tools. I want to also encourage you to remember that there is an art to Bible study, not creative license to make Scripture mean what you want it to mean, but the art comes in which observations you key in on, which which parts of a study that you really focus on, and so forth. And for me personally, that's one of the the great joys that you could take um, one passage and preach it differently thirty times. And, and have the meaning still stay the same and yet come at it from different angles. So let's just jump right in to that exciting word, cross-references. Two words. It's hyphenated in mind, technically speaking, one word. What does this mean? Well, the, the basic idea behind cross-references is that Scripture interprets Scripture. And we are so blessed that the Lord knows that we can't handle a piece of truth given to us one time. Because what is our what, what is our inclination? Well, uh, do I believe it? He said it once, and so we have all throughout Scripture, Scripture interpreting itself, and we have this confirmation over and over again. So, just a couple of general approaches uh, to cross references. There's two. And I know this is a little bit uh, masculine, but uh, the first one is the shotgun approach. That you pick a key word in a sentence, it'll take you to a lot of verses, most of which will not necessarily be helpful. And that's fine. You just have to spend a lot of time going through and, and searching. Um, and, you know, I've used the... the uh, the example of the word dog in scripture. You can look up all the verses that have the word dog in it. Almost none of them will help you understand your particular verse. And so that's the shotgun approach. I like the sniper rifle approach, sniper rifle approach. Use cross-references found in your study Bible notes, found in commentaries, found in margin notes in your Bible. These are going to be way more useful to you. So how do you... How do you find them? Where do you find them? Well, first of all, general topic, keyword, there's your shotgun approach, and that, that's a, that's a good starting point. Um, some of your Bibles will have, uh, cross references in margins. Those are very useful, and if you, if you've thought, why do they have all those little things in there? When you're studying uh, a particular passage, that's very useful. How about this? Your handwritten notes in your Bibles or in notebooks from sermons. Um, someone has done the hard work of cross-references for you. And if you will keep track of where uh, where certain uh, sermon notes that you have are, and not just do it on napkins and whatever and stick them on the shelf somewhere, but have a system, um, generally speaking, every message I preach 
unless there's a specific reason not to do this, I'm going to have anywhere between 20 and 50 cross-references. And so simply noting those is, is going to give you a head start. Um, and if you are uh, organized and you keep track of, okay, these are my notes for Matthew 5, verse 4. Here are all the cross-references for them. Five years from now, if you're going to study, blessed are those who mourn, you can go back and find those notes, and there's your cross-references. <coughs> You can use a subject index in the back of your Bible. So a lot of the Bibles have a subject index. It's not exhaustive, but it at least gets you a good sample. You can use a concordance. A concordance is basically a dictionary of Bible words and where they're found. That, that's a very useful tool. You can use uh, BibleGateway.com. And I don't know if this is uh, still accurate, but it used to be under the study tab. You can go to a keyword search. It's a shotgun approach, but at least it gets you started. And it does make you search through uh, proper context when you find all those particular cross-references. You can also look instantly at other English translations uh, from right there at Bible Gateway and uh, find the cross-reference that you're choosing. So it's a, a pretty useful tool. When you get to the point of using the commentary, and I emphasize over and over again, commentaries are the last thing you open because they take all your creativity away and your thinking away. But when a commentator mentions certain cross-references, these are usually pretty rich because he's already done the work of narrow, narrowing them down to, to relevant ones. Uh, you're not going to see in the commentary, uh, in this verse about, uh, about Gentiles being treated like dogs, here are all the cross-references that mention dogs. Commentators aren't going to do that. They're going to narrow it down to the useful ones. So that's the where and the how. I think that'll be useful to you. Now, I want to talk about the types of cross-references. I'm trying to find a way to make this interesting, but this is just, you just have to walk through this. Trust me, the, um, if you like what I preach on Sundays, the beginning point of my study is as boring as dust. It is just trudging through fact after fact after fact until um, truth begins to come to light. So I, I organize this from weakest to strongest. The weakest type of cross-reference. See also every charismatic church on planet Earth, because this is their this is their their um, uh, hermeneutic. The same word, which doesn't mean the same thing in context. In John three sixteen, the word world means people. For God so loved people that he came. It cannot be that he loved the entire world, every single person, because every single person will not be saved. It is people. In 1 John 2.15, world means a satanic system of godlessness which should be shunned and not loved. So in John 3.16, people to be loved. 1 John 2.15, a system not to be loved. So that's the weakest form of uh, cross-reference. And when you're taking the shotgun approach, you're going to mark those off. Doesn't apply, doesn't apply, doesn't apply. This is the weakest because now it makes you have to define two different concepts rather than clarifying the meaning in your particular text. And, and a, a kind of a rookie mistake in presenting and creating Bible studies is that people will use a cross-reference that doesn't help but use it anyway because they found it. And that what does that do? That's what we call a rabbit trail that takes you off into nowhere. So just reading off a bunch of verses with the same word in it doesn't prove anything, doesn't strengthen the point. Um, what you're doing is creating an argument. You're, you're trying to prove a point. Reading a bunch of verses with the same word in it doesn't prove anything except that you found them. And that's it. That's the weakest. A weak cross-reference... 
the same words which mean the same things in different contexts. So patience, for example, is the same in Galatians 5.22 as it is in Ephesians 4.2. Galatians 5.22, Ephesians 4.2 both use patience. They're, they're the same. This is better because it shows that the same word is used in the same way elsewhere. It can add to your study, but it doesn't always add to your study because you have to, you have to see what the context is. And the context of Galatians 5 is very different than the context of Ephesians 4. And so if you think it adds to your study to explain two different contexts, then that's fine. But it's not necessarily a one-for-one correlation. A strong cross-reference is a conceptual cross-reference. What I mean by that is the same basic concept. The words might even be different, but the same basic concept uh, is there. Spiritual fruit is seen in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. It's also seen in 2 Peter 1, 5 through 7. Different words, but the same concepts. And so they, they help you interpret each other. The return of Christ in Zechariah 14, the return of Christ in Revelation 19. Those are, those are very strong. Different wording completely, two different languages, in fact, but they're very strong because it's a conceptual cross-reference. And then the, the strongest of all is the parallel cross-reference. The conversion of Saul and Paul in Acts 9, 22, and 26. You put all three of those accounts together, you get the strongest account. You, you get the entire story. The resurrection of Christ. The accounts in all four Gospels put together give you the whole picture. And so the, that's the strongest. Now, that's not the only one you're looking for because there are very few parts of Scripture that have an exact parallel cross-reference. But uh, uh, if you don't believe me that that's the strongest, um, second, first and Second Chronicles, 45% of it is repeated information from Samuel and Kings. And so that's a, it's a built-in cross-reference of the parallel cross-reference type. Okay, so now you've compiled these lists of cross-references. So what are you going to do with them? So I want to give you some questions to ask. You always ask questions of of the text. Does it help clarify or add to the idea of my chosen text? And you have to be willing to say no. It doesn't help clarify. God's not going to be mad at you uh, for saying no to a portion of Scripture. He wants you to be accurate. Does it exactly reiterate the same idea? And so giving more weight to my observation. Those are the really juicy ones. Those are the exciting ones because that, that means that the idea you're formulating about one passage is confirmed somewhere else. That forms a very strong argument. Does it keep me from forming a faulty conclusion or doctrine? This is the negative good side. Um, you may start to form a conclusion and three other cross-references tell you, no, that's, I'm wrong on this. I, I have to on, honestly assess that. And then that's, now that instantly becomes a, a, a spiritual issue, right? Because if you really, really liked what you think this passage is, is leading toward and it was juicy and it's, and nobody's ever said this before and you're gonna be original. And then three other texts tell you, no, it's what everyone else says it means. Pride says, well, I'm going to go with the juicy original anyway. See also Benny Hinn and every one of his sermons ever. <laughs> Does it illumine earlier revelation or give the basis for, for later revelation? Which is it? Uh, for example, Ephesians 5 gives us instructions on marriage and it illumines Genesis 2.24. It helps us understand Genesis 2.24 Flip side, Genesis 2.24 is the foundation and the basis for Ephesians 5. Does it add a different context to the same concept? 
to show another aspect of the truth that can be applied. We're getting a little bit, uh, a little bit detailed now. Let me give you an example. Forgiveness in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's any time, any situation. Forgiveness in James 5.15 is specific to a situation of a physically ill believer who may be in sin and has been confronted and refused to repent of that sin. Different context, but it helps you kind of beef up the understanding of forgiveness. And so uh, you're asking these questions. And then does it help illustrate my chosen text? I, I tend to default to uh, in Bible illustrations. I think they're the most powerful and they, they are they have the distinct advantage of letting me teach you more Bible by using Bible passages as illustrations. Does it help illustrate my chosen text? Um, absolutely. Uh, let me give you an example off the top of my head. Um, Ephesians 2 talks about that while we were dead in our sin, um, God made us alive in Christ. Very clearly, uh, very clearly God's work. Is there an illustration maybe around Acts 9 with somebody named Saul that would talk about somebody who's dead in his sin and suddenly made alive in Christ? Well, it's the conversion of Saul, right? So it absolutely helps uh, illustrate the text. Um, did, did Saul have, make an intellectual decision to come to faith in Christ? Did he choose God? Did he meet God halfway? No. Saul got knocked down and told he's going to be saved. And that was it. So does it illustrate? And you see how powerful that is? It takes a didactic truth and you illustrate it elsewhere in Scripture and it proves that you are interpreting this properly. Now, let me give you some cautions in cross-reference. And I'm just using a very theoretical example here. It's important enough to take time on this. The main caution is the lack of proper context in cross-references. That's what leads to bad, theologically inaccurate, topical sermons, Bible studies, and books. And and, and I, I preach topically um, fairly frequently, and so this is a, a series of pitfalls I'm aware of, and, and you have to be aware of them. But here's the rule for topical Bible study. You may use a variety of scripture references, but you may not violate the various passages in their original intended contexts. So if you decide you're going to teach 10 different passages of the Bible in one study, you've got to find out what the context is of those 10 different passages. And so I gave you a theoretical example here. Uh, you have the topic ABC, that, that, that's what you're teaching. You have three uh, three passages you're looking at. Passage number one, the main thought is ABC in the context of ABCDEF. ABC stays intact. Passage two, same thing. Passage three, same thing. These are good, solid cross-references that really solidify your argument. Um, I like to use, I know it's a little bit masculine, I like to use the example of nails. That I can nail two pieces of boards together with one nail, I prefer to have a nail gun and use 20 because it's going to stick together. An argument, a proof in Scripture, is you taking your thoughts and nailing them to Scripture, proving that they go together, proving that what you've said about Scripture is true. And so as many nails as you can get in there. So this is a good example of the right context, the the, the right cross-references. A bad example on topic ABC, and this is the typical way that a topical Bible study is done, Passage number one, the main thought is R-A-Q-F-G-P-K, 
and you grab the A out of it. But that's not ABC. Passage 2, the main thought is GBJFTV, and you grab the B. And passage 3, the main thought is DHQCRT. Oh, CRT, those are bad words now. (laughs) See how horrible it is. (laughs) Worse than you even thought. And and that's just just a terrible example. That, That is laziness at its worst. And so what you have now is you've proven supposedly ABC using eisegesis, reading into a text what you already wanted to be there in the first place, stringing together a bunch of contextually unrelated thoughts to prove a point. I preached a whole series of sermons on uh, on this type of terrible eisegesis a um, number of years ago, and they're online, and we made a little book out of it also. Um, called Exposing Calvinism Exposed. And it's the only time in my life I've ever preached about someone else's sermons. Um, but there are a series of sermons here in town where uh, they were going after Calvinism using the worst hermeneutics I've ever seen in my life. And Darren and I, this is many years ago, we just stared at each other and said, we got to say something. And so we preached on hermeneutics and why this was so bad. It was, it was a lot of fun, to be honest with you. So, so you be cautious. Be cautious and careful. And every passage that you look at as a cross-reference, you must understand the context. You can't just grab it out and say, oh, this has the same word, and I really like this, and everybody knows this, and it's on the poster in, uh, in my office, and, and so forth. Let me give you a couple of examples of stringing together cross-references for a make-up, made-up point. That you don't get to relax that standard just because it's your, not your main passage. Uh, the main error, this is what we call proof texting. Where I'm taking a bunch of passages to prove a point that I've already made in my mind. So here's my main point. My main point is that Christians should be casting demons out of people. And I picked this because I've heard sermons on this topic and, and with that exact phrase. So... Here's, here's proof texting. Point number one. Christians are commanded to cast out demons from other Christians and not unbelievers. Matthew twelve forty three. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person that passes through waterless spaces seeking rest but finds none, then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Does that use the context correctly? No, the context is Jesus is using this as an illustration of trying to reform your life through good works without coming into right relationship with Christ. This is a, this is a salvation, uh, a soteriological illustration. Or maybe under point number one, that Christians are commanded to cast out demons from other Christians and not unbelievers, you could use Psalm 44, 5. Through you, we push down our foes. Through your name, we tread down those who rise up against us. Therefore, we're commanded to cast out demons. What's the context of Psalm 44? The context is a lament for a wayward nation. In the first few verses are speaking of when God used to fight for Israel, but now you've rejected and disgraced us. The context is everything. Point number two in our made-up uh, theology here. The authority to cast out demons is given to all believers. Ephesians 2 6. 
God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Ephesians 1, 20 and 21, he worked, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated us with him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Conclusion then, since Christ is far above all rule and authority and seated at God's right hand, and since we're seated with him in heavenly places, then we're over all rule and authority. That is extremely uh, uh, terrible logic. It's faulty reasoning, places us in the place of Christ, and it doesn't differentiate between being in Christ and being Christ. There's a big difference between those two. Point number three, rescue from demons is only for those in covenant with God. And you think I'm making this up? This is from an actual sermon. <laughs> Matthew 15, a Canaanite woman with a demon-oppressed daughter begs Jesus for help. And he, and he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And the point would be, rescue from demons is not meant for the unbeliever. Well, what's the context? First of all, Jesus did rescue the girl. And secondly, the point is that Jesus was sent first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. That's the point he was making. He is a Jewish Messiah. And I, I added one more in here, too, just for fun, um, because this is actually the biggest question when it comes to uh, Christians should be casting demons out of people. Well, what about the disciples? They were, they were commanded to cast out demons. That's right. They were also commanded to heal people. They were also commanded to shake the dust off their feet with anyone who wouldn't listen to the gospel. Are you commanded to do that? You're not. This was a specific time when Jesus is training the apostles. And would you think that the apostles who wrote the New Testament would give one, just one command to cast out demons? You would think they would, but they didn't. Not, Not one. So... That's just a, that's just, I know, a kind of a crazy example, but you would be surprised how many churches suffer under eisegetical, horrible proof texting, not only sermons from the pulpit, but worse in, in all the Bible studies. Well, let's open the Bible and we'll look at all these cross references and derive a meaning from it. That's just, that's not helpful. It's not good. Let me give you the importance of proper context and just give you an example here. I love this one. Matthew 7, 1. (laughs) Judge not that you be not judged. And it always ends on an up like that, right? Judge not that you be not judged. The usual interpretation is you have no right to say anything to me. Just out of curiosity, how many of you have ever heard a sermon on judge not that you be not judged as an example of being kind to one another? Yes, I understand that. The context is is that Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount and he's saying that the one who won't repent of his own sin, won't acknowledge his sin in his own life, is hypocritical when he's pointing out sin in the life of others. And when we get to this, this is a little controversial, but Jesus never called anyone a hypocrite who wasn't an unbeliever. So who is this speaking to? At least primarily unbelievers. That's That's my understanding. Are we able to say you can't judge anybody? No. You need a cross-reference to help you. 1 Corinthians 5.12 For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Stop right there for a minute. Is it your job as a Christian to determine whether somebody's saved or not? No. That's not your job. You give them the gospel. The fruit of their lives will show and you can certainly say, I don't know if you're saved or not, but you don't look like it. The fruit doesn't show. We're not called to judge them. But he goes on to say, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? 
Are we to judge one another in the church? Yes. You are acting like an unbeliever. Two people have confronted you about it. You want to continue acting like an unbeliever. Three people have confronted you about it. You continue to act like an unbeliever. We've told the whole church. A bunch of people have confronted you about it. You continue to act like an unbeliever. What does Jesus say to do? Treat them like an unbeliever. And put them out of the fellowship. Why? Because God wants a purified body and it's an act of love for that person turning him over to Satan and that perhaps he might come to faith in Christ. Here's another good example. Every 4th of July, 2 Chronicles 7.14, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. The usual interpretation, this is often the theme of the National Day of Prayer. It is a call to, quote, return America to being a Christian nation, unquote. First of all, there is no such thing as a Christian nation. It has never existed. It will exist one time in the future, right after the return of Christ, when he judges and executes every single unbeliever on earth. Every nation on earth at that moment will be a Christian nation. Then somebody is going to give birth to a baby. Then it starts going down from there. That's just a side note. What's the context of Second Chronicles 7.14? It is not the United States of America. It is not a general promise to any nation because there is only one nation called after God's name. Only one. This is God's message to King Solomon. It's after the temple in Jerusalem was finished. It's a reiteration of the Israelite covenant, the Mosaic covenant, that if Israel will obey from a humble heart, according to a covenant that God has with Israel and Israel alone, God will bless them. It's not a general promise to all nations. Now, can we use a principle that a nation that is so completely godless can expect God to stomp on them? Yes, there's a principle there. But there's a difference between saying that is the interpretation and we can derive a principle from it. What's the lesson? The lesson in context is that Israel did not obey. God is faithful to his word and we can be certain that he always does what he, said he's, what he says he's going to do. Okay, that's cross-reference. Now we move on to the excitement of word studies. <laughs> did that sound exciting? All right. Word studies, this is different than your initial common knowledge or English dictionary definition of keywords. We've done that earlier. The word study tests those definitions and clarifies them. And the tools I'm going to suggest to you are extremely basic tools. They're, they're old tools. They're, they're reliable. They're not terrific, but they're, they're useful. Um, they're not tools I use anymore, but I think they'll, they'll be useful for you. Um, so this is my example method, and it, this is a classic time-tested method. It's not, again, terrific, but it's, it's good. And that's using Strong's Concordance and Vines together as an example. Those are so old, you can like get a set of those for about 11 bucks on Amazon. So if you want to get the actual hard copy, um, it might even be free online now. Um, this is based on individual words. You're fishing in an ocean for one fish, but it will be helpful. The basic method is you use Strong's to find the exact word used in your reference. It'll have a number assigned to it. And then you use Vines to look up the English word and find the exact number which corresponds to Strong. So the two kind of go together. <coughs> Vines is old, but it's a good start. Um, there's a lot of a lot more um, re- reliable resources, but it's something you can get relatively cheaply and, and it'll, it'll be helpful. 
There's another one uh, that's better. It's called Mounts' Complete Expository Dictionary of Old and New Testament Words. I'll say that again. I don't think it's on there. Mounts' Complete Expository Dictionary of Old and New Testament Words. If you just um, uh, search for Mounts and Old and New Testament Words, you'll find it. Uh, you use vines to look up the English word, find the exact number that corresponds to Strong's. And, and the reason you're doing this is that different Greek and Hebrew words correspond or are translated into the same word in English at times. And so you want to find out the, the differences. And this is just a basic search for difference. For example, crown in English is always crown, but in Greek there's two different words that can be used and they have slight different, uh, slightly different nuances depending on how uh, they're used in context. Another example method, uh, studylight.org, um, going under commentaries and Vincent's word studies, VNT. Those are, those are useful. That can be helpful. It's very brief, but it can be helpful. Um, and then again, commentaries are helpful with word studies, but avoid the commentary as long as possible. So just a, a real basic way to use your word study is compare and contrast how the word is used in different contexts. This is, this is significantly overlapping with cross-reference, and I know that. Um, but if you compare and contrast how they're used, that'll help you. It also helps you know that perhaps the word is used differently uh, in your particular passage than it is in others, that they're still translated the same in English. And so that's a, that's a useful distinction. Um, it might lead you to looking in the Bible dictionary or a manners and customs book, maybe to find out how a word is used in its original context. Um, Here's a word that we see in our Bibles sometimes that you might have to look up. The word pinions. How many many people have used the word pinions this this week? Well, if you you look it up, does anybody know what pinions means, just for fun? What does it mean? Uh, The pin feathers on the chicken. The pin feathers on the chicken. Yes. (laughs) Except in the Bible it's on an eagle. Because uh, it, the, God doesn't say that I will, I will uh, protect you under the shadow of the chicken's wings. It's under the shadow of the, the eagle's wings, right? And so we, so we have these words and you need to look them up. And uh, so it's helpful. Opinions in English, the pin feathers, the, the feathers. Is that what it means in, in Hebrew? And you'll find that it, that it is. What I want to do, though, is give you ten cautions on word studies. Because this is where you learn to do a word study. It's like giving a five-year-old a shotgun that's loaded. You're like, he thinks he's a ninja at this point. He thinks he's a, he thinks he's a Navy SEAL. And so you want to be very careful. So I'm giving you ten cautions. First caution is pride. Getting Greek and Hebrew definitions is not the definition of knowing Greek and Hebrew. It's very different. It's not the comprehensive definition of exegeting a text. Exegesis involves doing all that you've learned so far, but it involves special special skills in language, verb forms, sentence structures, how things are used in context, way more than definitions. In fact, um, in exegeting a text, definitions of a word are really one of the least important parts. And so how the, a word is used in the syntactical context is more important the resources you have access to as an English reader don't have all the detail that more technical resources will have. So just beware of pride. Um, give up the notion that you've exhausted the entire body of knowledge about a given work, word because you looked it up in vines. That, that's not the case. Second caution, beware of basing doctrine and major meaning solely on a word definition. A word definition 
is a small part of the equation, and I would say it's the weakest one. It is the weakest part of the equation. Um, For example, in the book of Titus, chapter 1, depending on your translation, a qualification of an elder is that his children are believers. Or, depending on the other translation, his children are faithful. Well, that's very different. And the argument for believers is, first of all, weak in that it says, well, it's, that's what it says in the English Bible. Yeah, but there's other English Bibles that say faithful. And the argument is, well, believers, or, or, or this word can mean believers. Yes, and this word can mean faithful. Do you see how weak that argument is? So you have to go beyond that. I take the faithful. Why? Because no man on planet Earth has ever been made responsible for the salvation of another. And so theology trumps the word argument. So, so word arguments are helpful, but they're just a small part of the equation. I'm going to be going over to John chapter 11 today uh, in, our, in our message time. There's a word that will be used of Jesus. It's a very, very common word, but it's the only time this particular Greek word is used in the whole New Testament. It's only used of Jesus, so it's only used in this one context. Does that make it important? Yes, it does. Because now you're compared to the plethora of other times a different word is used. There's a clear contrast here. So you just want to be careful and use, use a little bit of logic. It's not the major part of the equation. Third caution, beware of cherry-picking your favorite definition that gives the verse a whole different meaning that no one else has ever seen in all of church history. If a good word study source says that this is the meaning of the word in your passage, here's ten other meanings in different passages, probably that guy knows what he's talking about more than you do. So you can't, you don't get to just go through and say, uh, oh, this, this means this over here. So I think I'll apply it into my passage because it's juicier and more fun. You, we don't get to do that. Beware of using words in a way they weren't used in the time they were written. It's called an anachronistic error. Um, and the, the classic example we're all taught in, in a seminary is uh, dunamis, which means power. And that's where we get our word dynamite. It's dynamite like power. Dynamite was invented and patented in 1867 by Alfred Nobel. The Nobel Peace Prize, by the way, was invented by Alfred Nobel also to try to undo the damage he thought dynamite would do in the world. Slightly different note. That makes no contribution to the text. All it is is something that what we say preaches well. is a little bit juicy and a little bit exciting. That's not, that's not correct. You can't do that. Here's a fifth caution. Beware of looking for the most exciting meaning rather than the meaning most likely given the context. That's sort of similar to number three, but you don't use emotion to pick a meaning of a word. You use context. Here's a sixth caution. Beware of etymology. That's a study of word origins containing the secret meaning of a word. The important thing is actual usage of the whole word, not the individual parts. And by the way, there's a, there's a ton of Greek words that are compound words that are uh, two Greek words put together. It doesn't mean that the secret meaning uh, is found when you pull it apart again, right? Um, for example, the word nice in English is derived from the Latin nesius, which means ignorant. 
So, can I call you nice? And you can say, how dare you? In Latin, that means ignorant. No, it, 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 Nessius meant somebody that was, oh, he's nice. Right? Just the pleasant, der, kind of a, he's nice. But the meaning has changed. You have to use it the way it means now. Uh, Nicolaitans, from Revelation chapter 2. Uh, from the Greek nikao to uh, conquer, win, and overcome, uh, and, and and then uh, the Greek uh, laos to which means people. And some have surmised that these are powerful church members trying to conquer the people of the church through bad doctrine or power plays. The text doesn't tell us that. The context doesn't tell us that. It's just showy. Is all that is. Um, it needs to be helpful and useful. Here's a seventh caution. Beware of the faulty law of first reference. I have seen this in so many sources that since the first reference to a word in the Bible means this, then that's, that's what determines the rest. Well, how about ruach in, in Hebrew? It means Holy Spirit, human spirit, wind, breath, or even your disposition, your mood. So what? which one is it? Context is everything. You don't just go to the first usage. Beware of bringing your personal theology or belief system to a word, wanting it to be defined the way you want it. You can't decide that my theology dictates what the word means. No, a word means what the word means, and it dictates your theology. Beware of dismissing what many others have said about a word. That goes back to number one, to pride. If you find five different sources that all say the same thing and they have a lot of letters after their name, that doesn't mean they're right. It means there's a high likelihood you're wrong. But uh, we don't want to let pride seep in. And then, as we've said before, beware of assigning random figurative meanings to literal objects. I just threw this in with, with word meanings. The five stones of David's sling do not represent wisdom, truth, purity, faith, and humility. The five stones... Of David's sling, stone in Hebrew means stone. It means rock, round thing with which to kill big bad guy. That's that's what it means. All right, we worked our way through that, and you stayed awake. This, see, my strategy is that the rest of the Lord's day is going to seem so much better after today. Those of you doing assignments. Here's an optional thing to do. It's a quick process, getting rid of your dead weight observations. I'll give you an example here in a minute. Go through your observations that you've done, and you should easily have 50 to 75. You mark out the ones that repeat each other and mark out the ones that don't add to your understanding of the text. Um, some of you here are wonderful cooks, wonderful chefs even, and you know what a reduction is. A reduction is where you take something that's really watery and put it in a pan and just let it bubble until it gets thick and delicious, right? Yeah, reducing orange juice alone is, is just a beautiful thing. Add a little bit of brown sugar, pour it on anything on planet Earth and it's delicious, right? <laughs> you're, you're doing the same process. You're reducing. You're bubbling it up. Okay, I don't need that one. Don't need this one. Don't need that one. This one is really good. It really helped me understand this concept. So go through and uh, highlight Asterisk the ones that really open the text up for you. You will probably keep coming back to these as you interpret the text. Okay, if you're doing your assignments, we're going to get into the mundane now. The observation assignment continues. This is the next part. And we're developing this as we go through the, the, the assignment. Um, find three to five helpful cross-references for major words or concepts. And beware, these may replace the original English definitions that you gave. And that's a good thing. That means that you're getting deeper into the text. 
give a couple of sentences about each one, considering the context and the helpfulness. Um, what's the easiest way to find the proper context of a cross-reference? As a trick question, there is no easy way. You do it the same way you found the context for your original passage. You read an introduction to the whole book, understand the whole book, look at what comes before, look at what comes after, read about what the the whole passage is about, and so forth. Um, Now, the good news is that gets easier over time because you just, you're connecting the dots more. Um, If you ask me what's the context of Ephesians chapter 4, I don't need to look that up anymore, and the same will be for you as well. Find precise meanings and uses for some of your most important words. And you might be confirming that all the meanings in Greek are the same thing as what your English Bible means. That's a good thing because we have a highly accurate English Bible. So that's a good thing. You're not looking for the secret meanings in everything. And there are deeper nuances to meanings and we understand that and you hear me say this from the pulpit all the time. I never want to give you the impression that your English Bible is just bogus and you can't trust it. You can trust it. This is just helping you confirm and maybe give a couple little more colors uh, to a meaning. And then again, you can go back and get rid of deadweight observations if you feel this uh, might help you. I, I think it is helpful. This, I, spend my, I spend my week getting rid of deadweight observations because the first thing I do with the text is just kind of explode observations all over either a sheet of paper or usually I use a program called OneNote and I have tab after tab after tab and I'm just, I'm just writing like crazy. And I take a deep breath and go, how can I not preach this in five sermons and do one instead? And sometimes I decide I can't. And so I'll say I'm going to do this in two. Um, so that's, that's what you're doing, getting rid of dead weight. Okay, I'm going to give you an example. We're going back to our example and we'll, we'll do this quickly. Our example is Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. And I ask questions about cross-references. And you, you have this text, so I'm going to move on. The questions about cross-references, well, where did I get that? Okay, um, all the questions. Does it help clarify, add to the idea? Does it reiterate the same idea? All the same questions I gave you in cross-references. Um, another example here. Colossians 3.12 Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So, I'm using this as a cross-reference to Ephesians 4.31 to be kind. And this is helpful because in Colossians 3.2 it helps me see what other concepts are listed with kindness what goes with kindness, compassionate hearts? That's the same as in Ephesians 4. You have that, that same tenderheartedness. The put on then in Colossians 3 compels me to look back at what Paul said previously. So I'm looking at the context of Colossians 3.12. So Colossians 3.12 is helpful. It reiterates the same idea. It gives more color to kindness because it consists what, consi- what kindness consists of. Um, kindness consists of compassionate hearts, humility, meekness, patience. And now I have a a really flowery understanding of what it means to be kind. It means to be compassionate in my heart. It means to be humble. It means to be meek. It means to be patient. Those things are kind. I find another cross-reference in James 4.11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. Uh Uh-oh. 
Here's one that says you should judge your brother, but now he says not to. What is this talking about? In context, this is saying somebody is less than me, less deserving of the grace of God. That's a different type of judgment. Same word, different meaning. I'm using this as a cross-reference for clamor and slander, not speaking evil against one another. What's the context of this sort of judgment? That I'm going to judge somebody not by going to them and saying, I, you are acting like an unbeliever and I want to help you with this. You're judging somebody by going to everyone else and saying, he's acting like an unbeliever. See the difference? Big difference. And then Psalm 25, 11, I'm just going through this quickly. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. This cross-references the concept of forgiveness back in Ephesians 4, 31, 32. This helps apply the text as a reminder, as God in Christ forgave you. So these are, these are helpful to help me explain the text. And then I'll do this very quickly. We did a couple of word study examples. Bitterness. From vines, it's, it's, uh, gives you some good, uh, information from Acts 8.23. It can be used of, of extreme wickedness, the gall of bitterness, um, and it actually gives you some good cross-references also to help you, uh, understand. So you, you're gonna find some cross-pollination here of good information. I also did one for, uh, kind. Means serviceable, good, pleasant, good, gracious, kind. Um, and then it, it, in Vines it says to see other words, better, easy, good, goodness, gracious. And when Vines says see other words, it means the same Greek or Hebrew word translated differently in different contexts. So that, that's what it's talking about. So by looking up easy, we find that the same word for kind in Greek in Ephesians 4.32, it's the same word used of Jesus for my yoke, is easy or kind and my burden is light so that's helpful so if you were to give a little preview of an interpretation were to be kind in the same way that Jesus was kind to us that's the standard that fits the theology of Ephesians 4.32 so there it is let me give you I said I'd do this really quickly one example of getting rid of dead weight observations. What is happening? Paul is telling them how to behave. I mark that off. What's the flow of the passage? He tells them what not to do, then what to do. I mark that off. Why? Because when I answered the question, what is the argument being made? The argument is you must put off the sinful and put on the righteous. Number three says what number one and two said. So I'm marking that off and I'm boiling it down. We're doing the reduction. The sauce needs to be rich and thick and delightful, not just thin and watery. You ever try to spoon gravy on and you can see through it? If you can see through gravy, it's not good. All right? So you want a thicker gravy. And I've given you an assignment already, and I'm just going to leave it up there, and we will be done for today. So thank you for listening, and uh, let's pray together briefly. Our Father, while it is uh, seemingly mundane to just have to plow through these concepts and these tools, it is these very tools, Lord, that will open up the mind of Christ to us as we open our Bibles and, and rather than quickly skimming through a passage never to return to it again or perhaps to see it again in five years. Lord, to take the time to take a verse or two or three and and choose to take a month to dig out the truths and to mine the gold and the silver out of it. I pray, Lord, that that is the case for every person here, that they would take this time 
Yes, with their normal Bible reading, but also, Lord, to take even just an hour or two every week to find the truths in something that is has previously been a mystery to them. And I pray that this would enrich their walks with Christ and most of all, make them more like Christ so that Christ would be honored and glorified. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We'll see you in a few minutes.